three, concepts of home ownership. Page 26 opens up our discussion of home ownership and on page 26 and 27 what we're really showing you is that in addition to single family homes there are many other types of uh, dwelling units that are uh, purposed for residential use. Obviously commercial real estate is a whole other uh, area that we could talk about but these two pages primarily talk about individuals looking for residential types of dwellings and the types that are there are apartment buildings and condominiums, cooperatives, uh, planned unit developments, retirement communities, and converted use uh, structures. Uh, you know, converted use might be where they took a, uh, a large uh, uh, loft area and uh, at one time would have been used for maybe industrial or warehousing kinds of uses and repurposed it for um, loft uh, units. Uh, upscale, if you will, residential units. Uh, the uh, manufactured housing uh, does include mobile homes. Manufactured housing is any housing that was um, the components of which were built off-site uh, at a factory and then shipped to the uh, vacant parcel uh, and they're assembled into a house. In fact, uh, years, uh, years ago, Sears Roebuck actually uh, pioneered manufactured housing. You actually buy a house from Sears on a catalog, and they would drop it off at your lot. And you'd you'd assemble you would assemble it there at the at the site. Mobile homes are are considered manufactured housing, but mobile homes aren't really considered real estate. They might be used for residential uh, uses, but they're really classified as personal property and not as real property. Uh, the intent of mobile homes is that their intention is to be moved and not uh, fixed in one location as real estate typically is uh, described. Uh, modular homes and timeshares are also considered uh, uh, types of residential uh, units uh, for, uh, for individuals and, and individual dwellings and, and these may also be areas that you, at once you're licensed, you may even want to specialize in these areas. Home ownership in the United States is critical to our gross national product of our uh, country and to uh, the health, uh, welfare, and expansion of our economy. So on the federal level, state levels, and local levels, uh, trying to stimulate, uh, maintain, encourage, and increase uh, housing uh, for individuals is very important and the key to doing that is housing affordability. So housing affordability is at the center of having a healthy, robust real estate market uh, that is uh, important to our economy, certainly important to our real estate professional professionals who make a living in the residential real estate field. Housing affordability, your book talks a little bit about rent versus buy. Basically what they're saying is that you've got to live somewhere and when you're uh, making these decisions of whether you should be renting or whether you should be buying, these are the kinds of considerations that are, you're going to be uh, thinking about. Uh, the first is you're going to be asking yourself, uh, where am I uh, working? How long am I, am I going to be here? Uh, am I ready to put down roots? Uh, do I have uh, you know, stability in, in, my, in my work and in my, uh, where the area I'm going to be uh, that I want to uh, live in? Uh, will I be living in the same area I'm working in? So you'll look at that as consideration. Obviously, if you are uh, going to be a bit nomadic, 
where you don't have plans to stay in an area over a year or two or three year period of time, you're probably going to be thinking more of renting than putting down roots and purchasing something. Your financial situation is going to be very important to you. How much money you make, what your debts are, what your credit scores are, what kinds of loans you might have to be repaying. Right now a big issue with housing affordability are the student loans. We have this young generation that is now leaving college and going into the workaday world and the real estate industry has a real concern that the effect of the student loans that these young people have is going to affect their ability to purchase property and it probably will. So it's a real consideration. So financial and your financial strength, your financial condition, your financial outlook is going to be an important determination whether or not you rent something or whether you purchase something. Housing affordability factors. What affects housing affordability, your ability to buy something, comes down to three factors basically. The price of a median home in your area, certainly the mortgage interest rates at the time you're ready to make a purchase as well as any down payment you might have. Obviously the higher the down payment you need, the more difficult it is to purchase something because it takes a lot more money to do that. However, the more down payment you have, typically your mortgage interest rates will be a little more attractive with higher down payments. So mortgage interest rates and down payments are the two key ingredients to helping housing affordability for most people as far as their rent versus buy decisions. And of course we might look at the tax consequences. Tax consequences may in fact be so important to you that purchasing and getting the capital gains treatment that you have when you purchase property as well as the deductibility of your home loan interest as well as your annual property taxes should be a real consideration. So as you're making the rent versus buy decision, one of the things you look at is if I do buy something, even though I might be stretching myself and maybe my mortgage payments may be higher than my rental payments and obviously I've got to come up with a down payment and obviously I'm making a decision that I'm going to be living in this area for a couple of years, but you'll also look at the tax consequences that will accrue to you as a homeowner versus a renter. As it concerns affordability, you as a real estate agent really have only one real concern as far as affordability that you're going to be involved with and that's knowing what PITI stands for. We talked about this earlier and we talked about front end and back end ratios, but just to put a little sharper point on it, when you're working with your buyers and looking for properties for them, you can do your own thumbnail analysis of PITI, what it's going to cost them to be in a particular property and whether or not that's going to meet their ability to pay. So PITI stands for principal interest. Of course, when they borrow monies, their mortgage payment is going to be PI, principal and interest. Then to their mortgage payment, that which they have to pay back on the loan that they're going to take, both in principal, the loan itself, plus the interest that was going to accrue on the loan that they're going to have, breaks out into a monthly payment of which we call PI. 
the principal interest, uh, if the borrower pays that amount over the period of time, the 30 or 35 or 40 years that they're taking the loan out, that will uh, that uh, the PI portion will completely um, you know, eliminate and pay off uh, the principal that they borrowed plus the interest. So PI. Uh, to that, we're going to add taxes and, insur and insurance. Uh, typically, one twelfth of the uh, real real estate taxes and one twelfth of the insurance is held in an escrow account, uh, of which the will uh, will be maintained uh, through uh, payments uh, added to their um, uh, monthly uh, PI payments. So we have PITI is your basically your monthly payment you're going to make every month, Mr. Borrower. Uh, to extinguish your debt, plus to have reserves for your property taxes and for your property insurance, that it, it will be paid annually. Uh, note that you may be adding additional monthly expenses to the PITI, which might include things like homeowners association fees, uh, other association fees. Uh, perhaps it's uh, it may be a condominium, so you've got uh, your uh, condo uh, fees, if you want to call them condo fees. Same same as the homeowners association fees. Uh, FHA or mortgage insurance premiums uh, that might also be added to the monthly payments depending on the kind of loan that's being taken out, uh, maybe private mortgage insurance, uh, those kinds of things. <coughs> so in order to get the really the monthly nut that the borrower has to uh, uh, pay each month uh, to see if they can afford the property they want to buy, in addition to PITI, we may be adding these additional amounts. Many people are interested in the different investment considerations that uh, individuals might be thinking about uh, either purchasing single-family property uh, that they're going to occupy or perhaps even investment real estate. Uh, as a real estate salesperson, you really should understand the advantages uh, that accrue to individuals that own real estate and live in it, as well as people that uh, purchase real estate for investment purposes. You need to have a working understanding of that. So we're going to give you just kind of a brief overview to this. And the other reason you may want to know it, particularly for residential, is uh, is uh, as you're dealing with prospective purchasers or perhaps maybe even tenants that you want to convert over to purchasing uh, single-family uh, properties, condos, townhouses, or single-family homes. Uh, one of the uh, great advantages that you'll want to be able to explain to them are the uh, different investment opportunities that are accruing to them uh, as a result and investment advantages that are accruing to them as a result of their owning a real, uh, residential real estate. Uh, for instance, uh, as an owner of real estate, you have annual, monthly, perhaps daily uh, increases in the property value. And yes, I know over the last couple of years, maybe some of our properties haven't, but they're all starting to gain momentum now. So uh, real estate has generally uh, gained uh, value and depreciated uh, over uh, the, all these years. And we had a little hiccup over the last three or four years, but I, I think that's an anomaly. And uh, we see uh, values of real estate picking right back up and increasing. So when you own real estate, when you purchase real estate, you're, you should be getting, uh, if not monthly, annual uh, increases to the property value. Uh, likewise, when you purchase real estate, you can borrow money and use that real estate as collateral uh, to uh, move into a property. You don't have to give it up. You can actually move into the thing that you're, you're uh, mortgaging. Uh, and uh, you can take the mortgage uh, debt uh, that you have and uh, pay that off every month. 
uh, and as you're making your, if you will, interest payments on your mortgage debt, uh, you're also reducing what you owe. So if you take the increase in property value, uh, that's happening, let's say, monthly. And if you take your mortgage debt reduction, because you're paying off your mortgage every month, the mortgage balance every month, we have a special thing called equity that accrues to people that own real estate. And equity is basically what you walk away with your pocket when you sell the property. Uh, equity isn't what the property is worth. Equity isn't what you owe on the property. Equity is the difference. Uh, it's, as I say, uh, what you end up with at the end of the day, owning real estate, and when you finally sell it and pay all your debts off on the property, that money you put in your pocket is called equity. Another advantage to uh, real estate would be income tax advantages, uh, and we're going to talk about those uh, that accrue to the single-family residential owner, uh, some great income tax advantages. Some individuals will purchase real estate for investment purposes and primarily for uh, investment rental income they might get, whether it be residential property, multifamily properties, uh, single-family condos, or perhaps even uh, commercial types of properties. The, the investor primarily is looking for cash flow from uh, rental income. So that's one of the advantages of owning real estate is from an investment standpoint. There is some cash flow that you get from rent that your tenants are paying you. Uh, you also get annual depreciation deductions from your net income. So you're able to, with help with your, your tax man, uh, to take the value of the depreciation of the uh, that's affecting the property every month, uh, excuse me, every year, your annual depreciation, and you're able to subtract that from your annual net income. Which so essentially you're sheltering some income from the from the tax man by taking these quote depreciation deductions. We'll talk about this more in another slide. And then, of course, there's capital gains treatment. Again, we'll talk about this in, a, in the next couple slides. But basically, capital gains treatment is a way that when you sell investment property, you're able to shelter some of your um, some of your the taxes due if, in fact, you engage in a 1031 exchange uh, versus just sell your investment property outright and take all the all the proceeds from it. Uh, it may be possible you may have a desire to, if you will, trade down and therefore with your investment property can't do this with with residential property that you are owner occupied with, but with investment property you're able to shelter some of that gain that you've made from uh, the federal tax man. Capital gains taxes, you can think of capital gains as being the profit earned on the sale of real estate. Uh, we buy a property and over the years it appreciates, typically appreciates over years, and when we go to sell it, we've sold it for a profit. Uncle Sam comes along and says, we're glad to hear that since you have a an item that's considered an appreciable item that has a, uh, a gain to it, which is what real estate does, we're going to tax you on your profit, Mr. Homeowner. Owners, when they pay their capital gains tax, pay at their ordinary income tax rate. If this is investment property, capital gains is, it is computed on two rates. One's a federal plus a state rate. The Illinois rate is 3%. The federal capital gains rate is 15%. So when we compute the profit, we take uh, our ordinary income rate, whatever it is uh, based on our family income for owners, 
for investors, we take it at the federal rates and the state rates which are set by law. However, because it's an individual residence and because we don't want to be too harsh to our individual citizens, we allow exemptions on our capital gains. If you're single, it's $250,000 exemption, pretty nice exemption. If you're married, it's a $500,000 tax-free exemption. So if we go, and uh, the rule, of course, is you have to be have living in that property two of the last five years to qualify. So as long as you're there for two of the last five years, you can continue to qualify for these single or these married uh, exemptions from capital gains. So with uh, individuals, we want to know that $250,000, that $500,000 exemption that individuals can claim, must know that. And then on commercial property, as far as 1031 exchanges, which is another option, uh, just to understand the basis of this, I don't think you're going to get many questions on 1031 exchanges. What I do want you to know about 1031 exchanges is, is not that you're declaring any kind of uh, forgiveness on your capital gain with these investment properties. You are just deferring them for a later date. So they're not excluded like you would be with, uh, well, for individuals. And the 1031 exchange might work something like this. You had a property, you bought it for 500000 and you sold it for a million dollars. So our selling price is a million dollars for this property with a 5% commission. Here's what happens with that investment property. We've earned a profit of 500000 We have some capital expenses, including a commission. We get to subtract that from our profit. So our taxable profit is $339,000. This is commercial property. There's no exemptions like there are for the uh, individuals. So we've got two choices. On our taxable profit, we either pay the capital gains on it and we're done with it, which is $61,020. Or there's another option. We can defer our capital gain to a later time and pay taxes then. If we defer it, we're going to buy a new building and we'll declare a 1031 exchange. What's going to be important is whether the new building is more expensive or less expensive than the million dollar building that we're selling. So we're selling this million dollar building. We're going to, we're going to exchange a million dollar building. If we exchange it for a higher price building, all of the capital gains is, exclu is excluded, is defer I should say deferred for a later date, no taxes due. If we exchange it for a building of lower price, in this case 900000 remember our building sold for a million, then we pay the difference in the tax due, which is $18,000 uh, of the boot of the $100,000. So we're going to pay uh, $18,000 in tax, which is at 15 and 3% of the $100,000 quote gain that we uh, have. So that will be due. The rest of it is deferred. I uh, don't have to know these exchange rules, but you should know. Uh, part of the rules is you have to declare your intent for a 1031 exchange uh, within 180 days after uh, you've uh, uh, sold property um, you can select a qualified intermediary three, po three, three possible replacement. You have to have s select uh, three possible replacement properties and who the intermediary is going to be, who's going to be holding this within 45 days. Then you've got an additional 35 days to close on the new building. Again, I don't think you have to know any of these exchange rules, but they're in your book and hopefully you'll understand a little bit better. 
So that's why I've got the, re the white thing there. Probably not, you don't need to know that. Homeowner's insurance, uh, there is a basic form of insurance uh, that most people have. You won't really be asked too much about homeowner's insurance, but you should know, you know, what coverages that it has with your basic form. Maybe take a quick peek on that on page 28. You might want to know the word subrogation. Subrogation says if, if you have a loss as a property owner and I'm your insurance company, I'm going to pay you off, but then I have the right to go and sue whoever created that loss for, quote, you and me. That's what subrogation means. I get to settle with you, stand in your shoes, and then I have the remedies that were afforded you. I have them for me to go after the whatever whoever created the, the, the loss that I, I, I eventually paid on your behalf. Uh, coinsurance clause, you should know that your insurance policy should have a coinsurance clause, which means every year you're probably paying more in insurance premiums than you did the year before. Why? Because typically every year your property appreciates in value, despite our market conditions. There are still properties appreciating in value somewhere in the world, I suppose. And because they're appreciating in value, you want to make sure that you always are insured for at least 80% of the replacement cost of the dwelling. As long as you're insured for the 80% 80, 80 of the replacement cost of the, uh, the, the, the property, in other words, you're paying your insurance premium based on 80% of the replacement cost, and every year that's probably going up, the good thing about that is that if you suffer a loss, There'll be no deduction of depreciation. The insurance company pays you the full amount of your loss and doesn't shortchange you with this thing called depreciation. So that's what the coinsurance clause is. It says every year, Mr. Insurance Owner, we're going to increase your rates if your property goes up in value to keep you at that 80% minimum coverage level. Federal, federal flood insurance. If you're in a federal flood plain area, uh, you, which means you're in an area that the U.S. Army or Corps of Engineers says tends to flood a lot. If you purchase a house in that area, before you can get a loan on that property, you're going to have to buy this separate federal flood insurance uh, to protect you and to protect the lender if you're in a floodplain area. So whenever you list property, you want to make sure or ask the sellers if they know if they're in a floodplain or flood hazard area that must be disclosed to prospective purchasers because the lender is going to require this separate floodplain insurance um, uh, before they will uh, allow, before they'll give you a loan on the property. <coughs> 